Tonight, the brewery, the featured brewery is Barrels and Bottles from 612th Street. And um, I'm going to keep this short. And we've got, well, we had a, uh, a very nice stout, kind of a sweet stout with some peanut butter, very smooth, very tasty. And then we have their um, uh, Sure Thing IPA, which is a very tasty IPA and a little bit lower in alcohol than a lot of IPAs. And barrels and bottles over there, it's really handy. So it's Zach and Abby that own the place. And then their two servers seem to always be, every time I've been there, Ryan. They're both Ryan. And I think they do that for after people have had a few beers, and it's, it's a lot easier to remember. And so um, barrels and bottles, 612th Street. And they do have a kitchen, so they've got some food, you know, sandwiches and the like. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Whitney to introduce our speaker. Oh, wait, one last thing. I am so sorry. I even have this up here so I wouldn't forget. But we do have... Golden Beer Talk glasses, $6 a pint, or four for $20. Wonderful for Christmas presents, also good for New Year's Eve presents. So, so buy them frequently and often. And with that, I'll turn it over to Whitney. All right. Good evening. It's really fun to see everybody. We like to begin and end with gratitude, so we're going to start off with our benefactors for the evening, the Dale Table. Thank you very much for your fine donation. <laughs> and also golden.com. If you aren't signed up on the golden.com information list, you should be because you'll get a daily email telling you what's going on in Golden, around town, and with Golden businesses. So it's a good information source, golden.com. Also, Flirtily Flower Shop down the street here has donated uh, this lovely flower to decorate our benefactor's table this evening. And it is a sight to behold. Um, on Friday morning, I have to admit, I'm one of those people. The alarm went off at 4.50, and we curled up on the couch in the dark living room and turned on the TV to watch Orion. It's amazing, and I even cried. I don't know what more I could say about our speaker tonight, but we are so thrilled to have Jim Clausen here. He's a systems engineer. He just got back yesterday from the launch, so let's hear all about it. Howdy, folks. Howdy. <laughs> yeah. Let me get this uh, booted up here. So um, I challenged uh, the staff here a little bit this time with a, with a presentation because we've got quite a few uh, pretty good pictures to show. So uh, that's why I set everything up here. So forgive us if uh, things go a little wry in the middle, but uh, we'll try and get it done. I think, I think we're set up okay. Um, so I'm going to talk about um, America's newest spaceship, Orion, and uh, EFT-1, which stands for uh, exploration flight test one. So this was our first full uh, space qualified vehicle that we uh, took for two laps around the earth. Uh, as we say, it's uh, Kennedy to Baja, uh, the long way around, <laughs> twice. Um, and so uh, let me get into it. So I'm going to talk about who I am, what Orion is, what was EFT-1, what were the goals there, and then what's next for uh, our program. So who I am, um, I work for a company called Stellar Solutions, um, and I work at the um, uh, Lockheed Martin facility down in Waterton Canyon, and I work on NASA's Orion multi-purpose crew vehicle. 
um, or MPCV. So what I do is uh, both integrated vehicle performance, so power, communications, thermal, uh, all those types of uh, commodities on the spacecraft and kind of integrate those across the vehicle. <coughs> and then I also, my primary uh, mission is to do planning and automated sequencing. So um, I wrote all of the sequences that uh, took Orion on the EFT-1 uh, from the ground and after it separated got down through the ground. So um, worked with all of the other subsystems to find out what they need to do when on the vehicle, made sure that we had events that triggered at those times. We measured the, um, the conditions uh, that would trigger the events and then sent the commands and did all that. So uh, EFT-1 was a highly automated uh, flight. We only sent, uh, I think, two commands up uh, during the flight. And so um, uh, we had a lot of uh, sequencing to do for that flight and a lot of testing to make sure that it was going to come off. Um, and then some background. I graduated uh, from University of Colorado and uh, University of Cincinnati. I'm kind of partial to the C's and the U's. <laughs> Uh, I live in Golden, and uh, I drink locally. I figured that was, that was uh, important to, to, uh, to point that out. So what is Orion? Real quickly, it's, as I said, MPCV, multi-purpose crew vehicle. Um, it's intended to do multiple different missions, uh, mostly exploration, and this is beyond uh, low Earth orbit. So since the end of Apollo, uh, about, uh, let's see, Apollo 17 was December of 1972, I believe. Um, we haven't been below, beyond low Earth orbit. So the shuttle only went up um, to uh, the, the heights of, I think, Hubble Space Telescope was probably the highest uh, orbits that it went to at about 350 miles. Um, and so this was the first time we went beyond that with a vehicle that is intended to carry humans. Um, it's a similar architecture to Apollo. Um, it's got a capsule configuration. Um, it's got separate crew and service modules, and it's got a separate launch abort system. And I'll show you what that looks like. So this is a comparison here to Apollo. Here on the left is the Apollo command module, service module here, and the equivalent Orion command module and service module here and launch abort system and then the launch abort system or launch escape system I believe Apollo called it. On the right you can kind of see the size comparison although we're shaped very much like Apollo we're quite a bit bigger we're 30 percent bigger um, we've got quite a bit more room in for the crew we can actually take four crew uh, instead of three. Lots of numbers on this chart I'm not going to walk through each one of them maybe 90% of them, so just, just kidding. Uh, this also uh, is a comparison of the statistics pretty much uh, between the two uh, vehicles. Um, I'm looking for some of the uh, um, pertinent ones. GLOM, or gross liftoff mass, so this is the, when we leave the pad, this is how much our vehicle on top of everything weighs. Uh, Apollo 8 was 75,700 pounds, and uh, Orion on the EM-2 mission is going to be 78,000 pounds. Um, so the EM-2 mission is a follow-on mission I'll get to later, but that is kind of the comparison to Apollo 8 that took a crew and did a lap around the moon. Um, EM-2 is going to do a similar thing with crew, so that was why we use that as a comparison. 
Um, the biggest difference is the what we call the delta V or the, the velocity that we can get with the propulsion system on board. And at this point, uh, our current uh, delta V is a little bit smaller than uh, what Apollo 8 had. Um, so our orbital capability once we get to the moon uh, is going to be a little bit different. So we'll have a little bit higher orbit than uh, Apollo 8. Apollo 8 went a little bit lower down to the sur closer to the surface, about 100 miles off the surface. Um, we'll do a much higher, we'll, we'll do probably the close, closest approach will be about 100 miles, but then the highest of the orbit is going to be around 4,000 miles, I believe. Um, let's see. I'll leave the rest of those. I, I guess the diameters here, the CM diameter, we're at 16 and a half feet, or about 5 meters in diameter. Uh, Apollo 8 was, was 12 feet in diameter. So those are kind of the big stats there. Orion technology. So the other big difference between us and Apollo is that we've extended the technology uh, in a number of areas. One in particular, there's a couple... Uh, uh, mentions on here are composite uh, structures. So we use a composite heat shield. We had composite panels for the back shell. Um, we had uh, thermal protection on composite structures. Uh, something wasn't that wasn't uh, done um, uh, during the Apollo era. Um, our let's see, uh, we have. Some significantly improved electronics. We have a lot more redundancy. Uh, plus, we have uh, what we call um, uh, error checking uh, computers. Um, so, uh, we have computers that bounce uh, internal to the chip. They bounce their instructions off of each other and make sure that both of them are saying the same thing and that uh, uh, they don't realize that one has taken a radiation hit and might be saying something uh, bad to the rest of the vehicle or sending wrong commands. Um, so that was a significant improvement. Um, let's see, what else do we have? Uh, advanced lightweight structures. So we use different alloys for our metals in our, um, in our uh, command module, the pressurized uh, module. We use different techniques in order to put it together. We used what, what, called, what is called friction stir welding. So instead of using a torch or uh, something um, like electric welding or anything, basically is a... Um, a post that punches into the um, center of the weld and goes around it, does it at much lower heat, the heat affected zone of the weld, which means the weld is stronger um, and we can design it to be lighter weight. So the whole system is, is lighter weight. Um, let's see. We have some pretty uh, significant guidance and navigation and control systems. When you look at what uh, Apollo um, uh, used in order to get to the moon, you're, you're pretty astounded that they actually got where they thought they were going to go. <laughs> um, uh, especially with computers that have very low memory and, uh, and, and uh, systems that they actually had to invent in order to do what they did. Um, so we've come a long way in those areas. So those are just a few of the technologies that we've got uh, advantages going into it. So what was EFT-1? So Exploration Flight Test 1 was really a, um, a means to uh, go out and do the hard things uh, during a mission and test out all the systems. So the hard things in a space mission are getting up and getting back down. And so uh, once you're on orbit, it's usually a little more quiescent. Um, things uh, don't tend to go wrong too badly. Uh, 
let's save uh, Apollo 13, of course. Um, but uh, uh, generally, things can go wrong in the dynamic portions of flight. So when you're going up through the atmosphere and back down. So um, this really tested uh, those systems pretty heavily. And one thing we tried to do, as you see, um, so this first orbit is a pretty standard low Earth orbit. Then the second orbit, we actually turn on the engine again for the upper stage and increase what we call our apogee or the high point of the orbit in order to um, increase the velocity coming into the atmosphere. And we do that so that we can actually ring out the heat shield to something closer to what we expect to see coming in from, say, a lunar trajectory or something outside of low Earth orbit. Um, if we came in from this altitude, we'd just be coming in at, say, 17,000 miles an hour. Um, and uh, in this way, we're coming in at over 20,000 miles an hour. So we can get a little bit extra uh, oomph on that heat shield and make sure that we've designed it correctly and that it meets all our uh, modeling predictions and everything else. The other objectives during the flight were to uh, assess the automated sequencing capability, make sure the computers are working. Uh, in this process of uh, going up and coming back down, we go through what's called the Van Allen belts, which are high radiation areas, and so we have to uh, uh, deal with that on our computers. Uh, luckily, our main computer didn't reset during the whole time, so we were uh, glad to see that. Um, let's see. So for EFT-1, um, when I got down there, the vehicle was still in what we call the mobile service tower, the MST. Um, and uh, we were actually fortunate enough to go up the elevator on the side here and go, go visit the vehicle and wish it good luck. Um, and uh, got to take a few pictures up there. Um, and then once they rolled back the tower, uh, you can see the picture over there. That's a ULA picture. I thought it was a, a pretty neat picture that they took there. Um, so it took a lot to, to get to this point. Um, uh, about two years of, of putting things together. Um, uh, and when you build a spacecraft for the first time, you find out a lot of things that you didn't think about. Um, so uh, there were a few times where we had to back up and, and think a little bit and, and, and uh, keep going. But uh, we eventually got it all put back together and uh, uh, got it to all fit within everything that we, the, the envelope that we wanted to fit in. And it came in a little bit underweight, so we were happy to see that. Um, and uh, at this point, we were, we were ready to go. So take, take one. This was Thursday, December 4th. We had a few problems. The first one was, there's a tugboat. No, that's not the tugboat that was out there. I actually couldn't find a picture of the tugboat that was out there. Um, uh, the other one we had was, was the wind. Um, if I uh, back up one, the reason the wind is important is you don't see it in this picture because you're looking from behind, but this tower stays where it is, and these are umbilicals that service the vehicle and separate at, at basically T0. They pull away. Problem is, is that if the wind, the one thing, this thing moves pretty slow when it takes off, if people notice when you were watching it. And if there's a strong enough wind, there's a big enough cross-section that this thing moves as it's lifting off from the pad. 
So they have um, constraints on how much wind they can handle so that they don't run into this tower. So that's why those wind constraints are there um, and why we had problems with that. We had actually stronger winds um, the next day, but they were from a slightly different direction. Um, and so that's why we were able to uh, launch on Friday, uh, even though the winds were a little bit higher. Uh, what ultimately got us on uh, uh, Thursday were uh, the uh, valves that service the uh, liquid helium tanks, or hydrogen tanks, excuse me. Helium wouldn't burn very well. <laughs> um, it was thought that uh, the long duration of the, um, the launch window that we had, a couple hours, uh, allowed the valves to cold soak and probably pick up some uh, ice formation on the outside of the valves, and therefore they didn't close very well before uh, we went into the launch, the final um, terminal count of the launch. They couldn't get them closed, and so we finally lost uh, our launch window and had to scrub for the day. What they ended up doing was the next day they ended up cycling the valves more often during the day. Um, and actually it, it turned out that we launched on the beginning of the window and, and it didn't have to worry about it. So the valves worked. Take two. So here was liftoff. And if you notice, and, and I have a, a video of the uh, launch at the end, um, one thing that the Delta IV is known for is this big fireball. And a lot of people that hadn't seen a launch before thought, oh my god, it just exploded on the pad. <laughs> um, but that's just uh, the excess hydrogen around the vehicle because hydrogen leaks through just about anything. Uh, so it builds up around the vehicle a little bit. And so there's a big, big ball that rises up um, as that burns off. Uh, what they did this time was they did a staggered start, um, which they've tried on the east coast or west coast. This is the first time they've done it on the west coast, where they start the outside engines and the, and the inside engines at different times to hopefully mitigate that fireball. And actually, compared to the first launch that I saw, it, it was much smaller. The first one I saw, actually what they call these boat tails on the back end, um, as they were going up, they were on fire. <laughs> And it wasn't detrimental to the rocket, but um, it made some people a little nervous that things were going on. So the first thing that happens in the mission um, for us is when, um, uh, so after the, the um, port and starboard boosters separate, a little bit after that, the core booster shuts down and separates as well. Then what they do um, is on the second stage, they have a nozzle that moves a little bit um, and extends to increase its performance, and they, they package it up in there to, to be able to package it better. Um, and that extends. Once that extends, that triggers us. They send us actually a signal from the launch vehicle that they've extended that nozzle. Um, then what we do is a number of, of uh, pyro activations to get our, our thermal system going, so our um, uh, helium pressurization of, of our ammonia cooling system goes on. And then a little bit after that, that engine starts. And about 22 seconds after that, um, these panels come off. Now, these cover our service module. And they're there in the future flights to protect the surfaces of the radiator that the service module has and also the um, solar panels that we have that will extend afterwards. And so those are pretty important to keep things um, uh, protected during that um, portion of the launch 
um, that's going through the atmosphere because uh, things can heat up back there and the aerodynamic forces on solar arrays uh, doesn't do those any good. Uh, the next thing that happens uh, uh, once these panels come off, about five seconds later, uh, our launch abort system comes off. Um, this was an animation of that. Uh, we don't have, we didn't have another vehicle flying beside it taking this video, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> right, right. Well, on their next flight, we'll have GoPros, <laughs> literally. Um, and so uh, our launch abort system, even though the uh, abort portion was inert, the jettison portion, so it could remove itself from the vehicle uh, and, and fly away. So that was an important test objective to make sure that we could get that system off of the vehicle. The reason we do it at this point is to reduce the amount of weight we're carrying to orbit. After this point, we're pretty sure once we get the engine started on the second stage, we're pretty sure we're going to make orbit. We've had it going for about 30 seconds, and we're like, okay, it's good. We're, we're good. And the um, auxiliary engines we have on the back can do our uh, abort um, instead of having uh, the launch abort system uh, take us so fast out of the way. The, our launch abort system is there to get us out of the way initially from a solid rocket motor that we had during the Constellation days. It had to get us out of Dodge really quickly. And so that's one, one reason it's so big right now. Um, but um, we need to lose that mass because the launch vehicle couldn't get to orbit if that mass was still on there. So we got rid of that and that all went uh, pretty good. So then we ended up in this configuration so again, this is the crew module up front. This is our service module in the back. This is what's called the CMA or the uh, crew module adapter. And then this is attached to um, the upper stage of the Delta. So we're still on attached to the last part of the Delta uh, via this section here, which is our structural adapter. So we go through the first orbit. We do a couple of configurations. We switch for different uh, satellites we're talking to, the different TDRs, so on and so forth. Uh, we turn our um, developmental flight instrumentation on and off because uh, they're off-the-shelf hardware and they're susceptible to radiation. So we had to cycle those power, the, their power. Uh, and then um, after we uh, do a number of other things and, and get our cameras on, uh, this is what the shot that we got um, at Apogee or the high point in the orbit. So here we're 3,600 miles up um, and we all thought that was a pretty good view uh, from where we were. So then as we are coming back in, uh, we go through CMSM separation. Uh, so this is where the crew module itself separates from uh, the uh, uh, CMA and the SM in the back. So what happens is the launch vehicle gets itself into a position, um, zeroes its rates or gets itself steady, and then gives us a signal that says, I'm totally waiting for you to get off. Um, and it waits for about 40 seconds while we uh, close a number of valves, do a number of things, um, and detach the umbilical uh, on the top, and then there are a set of six um, explosive bolts on the bottom of the uh, spacecraft uh, that fire and uh, uh, springs that push us off uh, so that we have a little bit of um, uh, force to get us separated from uh, the launch vehicle. 
So uh, we do a couple other things. One of the other things we did as a flight test objective was to do um, a small burn, a, what we call a translation burn, um, uh, to test out our ability to do those kind of burns. They're called, uh, if we were to use them in a future mission, we would actually do what's called a skip entry, which means you would literally uh, use the burn to try and skip a little bit off of the atmosphere and then come back in and what that does is allow you to extend your range um, and be able to uh, control how far it is from your landing site and by the amount of burn that you do you can get better accuracy of where you're going to land and so on and so forth. Um, we actually didn't do a skip entry we just did the burn to, to um, uh, prove that we could turn on the engines do the right burn move to the right attitude and, and do all that. Um, so then this is approaching uh, re-entry. Some folks are speculating that this was some plasma coming off. Uh, there are a few of us that think that that's just exhaust from our uh, reaction control system. So some of our engines are firing at that point. And so we just think that that's uh, exhaust coming from there. So entry, descent, and landing. That's us. <laughs> Uh, this is an IR camera off of the P3 Orion that's flying uh, with cameras. We had two P3 Orions and we had one um, unmanned drone called the Icona. That's a NASA asset. Um, but this is the IR to pick up. Uh, this is where we are in our peak heating essentially. Um, at this point I don't think we were getting data from the vehicle because we're surrounded by uh, plasma um, uh, that blocks out our communications for about two minutes. Um, and so they were uh, gracious enough to take a picture for us. This, uh, even though it's a little grainy, this was a great sight to see. This is These are our drogue chutes. We have two chutes that come out um, once we reach a particular altitude um, that begin to slow us down. And so one of the things being a manned spacecraft, you can't stop on a dime because you've got squishy things on board that you've got to take care of. And so you've got to slow down pretty slow. And so our drogue chutes come out. Uh, so uh, before those come out, we have a, a big cover that covers all our parachutes to make sure that they don't have problems in all the reentry heat. Uh, so that comes off. It has three chutes on it that pull it away. And then these two chutes come out, slow us down for a while. And then the other good thing to see were our three main chutes. Uh, so when these came out, we were all quite relieved. Um, and they came out um, all unfurled and all um, disreefed appropriately. So what they do when they come out early is they're very tight and they're kind of constrained because um, you don't want all of that area open at once because that'll slow you down too fast and it's too much load on the chutes. So they come out in kind of a really constrained portion and then we've got uh, timers on the um, uh, cables themselves that allow those things to open up in stages and get bigger. And then this was the last splashdown uh, picture from the ship. Um, and we actually landed upright. We had a 50% chance of, of hitting and, and turning over, what we call stable two. Uh, but we landed in stable one and, and didn't move from there. So we had good, uh, a good touchdown there. We also detected our touchdown automatically. So um, we have accelerometers on board that look at uh, how much acceleration that we have and so that was used to then move into the uh, what we call our post landing segment and it cuts the chutes and uh, deploys our bags and so on and so forth 
So this was the recovery operations. Uh, those two bags there are two of five bags um, that were supposed to inflate as our uh, SEMA system or um, uprighting system. So if it did land in stable two, those bags would provide enough flotation to flip it over. Um, unfortunately, we had um, only the two inflate. Uh, the other two came out, uh, but were deflated somehow along the way. We're not quite sure. We're still looking at that. And then one of them looked like it didn't come out of its holder, although all of the pressure was out of the tank that inflates it. So we're still investigating that one. We think there might have been some interplay with um, the parachute risers and, and things that we've um, we've looked at. So um, that's yet to be seen what happened there. So we'll we'll figure that out. That's like our only thing that we were a little sad to, to see those not come out fully. So then the, uh, the guys on the ground uh, approached the vehicle and uh, uh, they put this sling around uh, the bottom to be able to tow it. And this is one of the guys getting that sling uh, cinched up. And then they tow it back into the ship. This is what's called a well deck ship. Um, where uh, you can actually flood uh, the bottom portion here. And so we just towed it right into that flooded bay. And she was home and we took her back. So it took a few days to get back to San Diego. I think yesterday she arrived. Um, and then they'll do some deservicing in San Diego. Uh, and then it'll be trucked across country, take about 10 days or so to get back to Kennedy Space Center. Um, and we've already got uh, a lot of the data off. Um, all of the primary data on the primary computer has been offloaded, and we've, we're looking at that data, and we have about 10 days to get a report out to NASA, a quick look of how things went. And then um, we have some other data that will take a little bit longer to get off the vehicle and, and uh, e uh, examine that. And then... So what's next? So for deep space exploration, um, uh, the folks at NASA and also there's been a group down at Lockheed Martin that's been extensively looking at how do we utilize this new asset that we have to do exploration. Um, and uh, the guys at Lockheed, um, I believe they're the ones that uh, coined the term stepping stones, which uh, would be using asteroid uh, lunar missions um, uh, a, um, a larger uh, asteroid uh, system. Um, this one out here would be an unmanned scout, maybe to bring one back to the lunar environment using the Orion in a single um, vehicle configuration to go out to the lunar orbit where the asteroid is pulled to uh, and investigate that asteroid that's been brought into our, our local area. Uh, this Plymouth Rock is one where we would go out to one that we, is too big to bring back. And in this case, this was one that we looked at using two Orions um, plugged in together, um, the so-called kissing Orions, um, and uh, used that for, say, a 90-day mission uh, to go out and back to, to that situation. And then the, the longer-term um, mission uh, would be the, the Red Rocks mission, which would be uh, the Deimos, or the, the uh, smaller moon of uh, Mars, um, it's a very easy to get to, and it's one that uh, could be done with relatively low resources 
uh, wouldn't have to land on the surface of Mars. Getting to the bottom uh, of a, the gravity well of a planetary surface is a very tough thing to do. Um, and so we were looking for ways uh, to utilize our system in, in, in near-term ways in order to uh, maximize our, our return. Um, what you can also do in, on, in the Deimos um, example, either Deimos or, or Phobos, but I think Deimos is, is preferred from our standpoint, um, is control robotic exploration on the surface of Mars from that location. One of the difficulties in using robots on Mars today, even though we've been, I'd say, fairly successful with the, the Curiosity rover and, and uh, the other rovers that we've sent, the, the communications time uh, is very difficult to deal with. And so if you're in a local area and you can actually communicate to the surface, you can do much more um, uh, exploration uh, with those robotic assets uh, real time uh, with the human intervention. So um, let's see. I think that's it. And I did have a video that I will start here. So there's the fireball. <laughs> yeah. And there's the liftoff. Yeah, you saw all the arms swing away. And it's, it's amazingly stable, even as a rocket scientist, I'm amazed at what those guys can do. <laughs> So we flew, uh, flew for a while, then we ended up in a cloud for a bit. Um, so the, the folks on the ground uh, didn't lose track of it, but they could still see the, uh, uh, the hot parts, but didn't get, here's where we go into the cloud here. Actually, there are uh, three liquid boosters. There are, it's a common core booster or common booster core concept where those bottom three are all the same type. Um, and what they do is they throttle down the middle booster after they get off the pad to save fuel. And they save its fuel for later. They keep the other ones burning for, a long, for uh, their high uh, thrust until they burn out. And then once they burn out and fall off, then they um, increase the thrust on the main core until it burns out. So you can see that that, that center core is a, is a little bit... Um, not as bright burning as the outer port and starboard engines are. Yeah, this is a camera on, I believe it's our, um, it's our CMA, our, our um, crew module adapter. These are our um, SM panels right here that we'll see come off uh, in a little bit. So now we're getting high enough to start to see a little curvature. Uh-oh. <laughs> I don't save you. 
Yeah, we wish we could pause in the middle of a flight sometimes. Wait, wait, hold on. Hold here for a minute. Right. Um, I guess I'm not sure what is going on. Right. If you've got AT&T, you need to get off, turn off your cell phone. Uh, that was live time. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, six minutes until uh, we lose our panels, about four minutes until the, um, the boosters uh, separate. And I'm not sure it's going to continue. But that's all right. That's all I had. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> okay. Yep, that's it. Thank you. Ready? All right. We're going to bring this back in here. Slowly, gently. We notice a voice at the front of the room. Okay, guys. I guess I'll just bring you up, Jim, because if you get up here, they'll notice. Just come on up here and they'll notice. Or limit me to 10 answers. Okay, there's a quick one right here. What is the reality of a gradual takeoff and a gradual landing without having to fire up vertically and come down the way these craft come down? What, what are the physics of the, preventing that? Um... Yeah, the amount of fuel that you, it has to be, the, the time is, is important. So the longer you draw everything out, um, usually the, the efficiency of the engines isn't there to be able to capitalize on doing it slowly. Um, there are a number of, um, I mean, or, Orbital already has, has had a, uh, uh, air launched system for a long time called Pegasus where they fly up and, and they do that and actually um, Virgin Galactic and, and uh, that crew uh, used the White Knight 2 in order to uh, take it up to 50,000 feet so they don't have to take off from the ground um, and uh, I think is it Joe Allen uh, that uh, somebody's looking at uh, another air launch system uh, to capitalize on that system as well. So there are advantages to it. Um, there are, it, it has its own disadvantages as well, so it's, it's difficult to, to do that. But, um, yeah, it's really just dragging out that time in order to get to orbit um, and the inefficiencies of the engines at those speeds um, eventually take its toll on the ability to carry that much fuel. 
But uh, they are working on things like uh, scramjet engines where you're using a compressed upper thin atmosphere as your oxidizer and, and you only have to carry fuel then. Um, so there are you know, advanced technologies out there that are trying to capitalize on that. But uh, the other thing that we take advantage of is staging. So um, you break your vehicle up into multiple stages so that after you get to a certain point, you drop a huge amount of weight and then you can continue on and weight is everything for performance. So. We're not, we're not counting that one. We'll take one more for this table. So our next flight is called um, Exploration Mission 1, and that's another um, unmanned uh, uh, mission, but it's going to be out to the lunar environment. Um, we're going out and doing what's called a um, distant retrograde orbit where we slingshot around the moon and go past the moon and then come back and then uh, slingshot around the moon and come back in. Um, it'll be a 21-day mission, I believe. Um, and that will kind of shake down the, all the systems. So a lot of the um, systems that we didn't have on this flight, some of the um, um, environmental control systems and uh, some of the other systems that we need to test for longer durations and so on and so forth would be on that flight. 2017 is currently on the books. And then uh, our first crewed mission would be 2021 is on the books right now for an EM2, Exploration Mission 2. And that is a lunar orbit mission where we go actually into orbit around the moon. With crew. With crew. Back here. So we're still kind of investigating that. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, the question was, how much of the hardware is reusable? Uh, for this EFT-1 flight, um, we are going to use quite a bit of this in another test called AA-2, which is Ascent Abort 2. So um, we'll test the launch abort system during an actual ascent on a rocket. Um, we'll go up and we'll, we'll fire the launch abort system to pull the crew module away and test that. Um, as far as a uh, reuse after um, one of the exploration missions, we're still looking into that, how much we can reuse. A number of the components will be used, particularly the avionics equipment, the, the electronics boxes. Um, given that we're currently in a land, uh, water landing situation, um, people shy away from reusing the structural components because they've been exposed to seawater. Um, uh, so we'll have to look at some of that. Um, uh, so we'll, we'll be investigating the reuse of different parts of it as we go along. But things like the heat shield um, itself is an ablator. Uh, the heat shield actually uh, loses mass as it comes in uh, as part of its um, uh, keeping the heat down. Um, so that has to be replaced as a minimum. Um, the back shells themselves, uh, the, the conical portion, are tiles similar to what the space shuttle is. Uh, so those could be reused. Um, so we'll have to look at, at, at those um, components to see uh, how they could be reused. Uh, 
uh, either the so she wants to know where all the things that we dropped off uh, as we we're going up the stages and, and the different components um, uh, in our case the panels and the launch abort system end up in the Indian Ocean I believe um, the uh, core stages uh, from this last flight I believe they were in the North Atlantic but I'd have to go check that no they just sink like most of the launch vehicles the core stages now um, next week or the week after uh, you want to watch the SpaceX launch because they're going to try and actually return their core stage back and land it on a floating barge so they're going to come back. They're going to save a little bit of fuel. They're going to fly back, and they're going to try and land vertically on this barge. They say they've got a 50% chance of making it, but we'll see. Go ahead, Bart. So uh, Bart wants to know the um, the concept of operations of the launch abort system is it manual is it automated does the crew get to decide if they they come off and the answer is yes um, all of the above um, so uh, we haven't decided all of the inputs yet um, actually first quarter of next year is when when I start the automated sequencing of those exploration missions and determining what those values are um, and uh, so a lot of it depends on our fault detection. You know, what, what faults can we detect uh, that can logically be combined to say, you need to get off the vehicle. Um, we also have inputs from the flight termination system from the ground. So if the ground decides that the launch vehicle is going awry, they'll send a signal to the launch vehicle for it to self-detonate. We are tapped into that system and get a note that says, your ride is about to get exploded, so you need to get off. And so we trigger on that system, and so once we get that system, we know we got to get out of Dodge. Yeah, so um, accelerometers, strain gauges, inertial measurement units that determine what our, if we're on, on the right trajectory. Um, uh, the crew has an input into the display uh, whether it's a big red button or not we're not sure but um, uh, so yeah so we'll, we'll investigate any and all reasons for why you would want to trigger the abort system and what measurements would be needed in order to, to know that um, and then also other you know whether it's uh, um, RF system like the flight termination comes in as a radio signal from the ground um, so on and so forth back there so the question is does, do, you, do I think SpaceX is a contender for Mars and do I think they're quoted um, timeline, which is the mid 2020s, uh, is uh, realistic um, compared to uh, NASA's 2030s um, uh, that we've heard in the past. Um, 
you know, I'm, I'm not going to count Elon out. He's, he's a force to be reckoned with when it comes to um, uh, getting things done. Uh, so uh, he's done some pretty impressive things. And, and uh, um, that being said, um, a lot of people see a lot of this stuff as, as competition with, with NASA. Um, what you need to understand is 90% of his development funding for that vehicle came from NASA. So he's not necessarily competing with NASA. NASA is helping him along uh, and investing in his abilities. Um, whether he can get to Mars in his quoted time frame, um, I think it would be pretty tough. Um, and then you've got to wonder, is the surface of Mars the ultimate goal um, and what does he want to do when he gets there? Um, you know, what, is, what are your reasons for going? Um, so, you know, we'd, I'd have to evaluate, you know, what he's doing, and, and uh, I don't know a lot about his, his proposed method. I do know the 2030s, the early 2030s, is, is a more, from what I've understood, and, and I haven't looked into it as deeply as I probably should, is a more advantageous time to go with solar cycles and everything else. Uh, like 2033 seems to be one of the better years um, uh, to go to Mars. So, um, Why? What's that? Why is 2033? There's a lot of alignment, I think, with low-energy orbits, so the amount of energy it takes to get to Mars is lower. Uh, it varies throughout you know the time every two years we have an opportunity to get there that that lines up well uh, but every opportunity has its own amount of energy it takes to get there and that I think is one of the lower energies plus it lines up with uh, a low point in the solar cycle or an, an advantageous point point in the solar cycle you have to balance so so one of the big problems with going to Mars is the radiation so interplanetary radiation is um, we, ha we don't know quite how to deal with some of that yet, especially if we get solar flares and things like that. Um, the other problem is that if there's no solar flares, well, then the magnetic field of the sun gets smaller and actually cosmic radiation starts to become a problem and it's coming in at higher rates. Um, so there's a balance point that you have to um, meet when you're planning those missions. Um, and it's probably going to take a little while to figure out some strategies to mitigate those issues um, uh, for for radiation. Over here. Right. Right. So the question was, how far out are the missions planned uh, for this vehicle? And EM2, uh, that 2021 opportunity, uh, is the farthest that we're under contract for from a Lockheed standpoint. Um, uh, NASA has, I won't call it on the books, but they have, they're, they're using terms like EM3 um, and the types of things that they want to do for EM3, but um, we don't know about that yet from, from our standpoint. Question was: Did we have crash test dummies in the EF21 vehicle? And actually, we didn't. Um, but we had accelerometers 
on the vehicle to do a lot of that uh, data gathering. Um, so it wasn't, wasn't deemed necessary that we put the, the crash test dummies in there. We have done a number of tests on the ground, uh, water landing simulations at Langley and so on and so forth um, that did have crash test dummies. Um, and so we've gathered quite a bit of that data. Uh, so the question was, uh, was I surprised about something that actually worked on the vehicle? Um, you know, one of our big worries on this flight was our computers handling the radiation through the Van Allen belts. And we were, I'd say a few of us were surprised that we didn't take an upset, uh, what we call a single event upset, or where uh, the radiation flips a bit on the computer and the computer senses that and so it restarts itself. Um, so, um, you know, we're, there's, there's probably a little bit of mixed um, feelings on that where we're glad it didn't happen. Uh, so we're thinking, well, maybe our computers are more robust than we think they are. Um, it would also would have been good to demonstrate how the computer can come back up after a situation like that. Um, but we'll take what we got. <laughs> Okay. All right, so you mentioned three times uh, radiation, dose, exposure. What, what was uh, the maximum that a human would have been exposed to? Like an apogee or wherever? Um, question was, uh, what was the maximum radiation uh, on this flight that maybe a human would have been exposed to? You know, I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, but we did have radiation monitors on the flight, um, I believe, on this flight. And so we'll get that data back. Um, uh, so yeah, that's a good question. I think at one time I probably knew the answer to that, but it's, it's left. <laughs> it's left the building. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're not um, looking at, uh, so the question was, uh, are we doing anything with onboard manufacturing, 3D printing in space? <clears throat> they just fired up the 3D printer on the space station and made their first part, uh, I think, maybe a couple weeks ago. And I've, I've actually watched a couple of their uh, presentations, and it's pretty fascinating stuff. Um, we do not do anything like that on our vehicle right now. Um, and, and really don't have any plans at this point to, to implement anything. Um, it's certainly open for the operators if they think they need something like that on a long duration mission to include that in their technology mix, but uh, we don't do anything like that. But we do, we are investigating 3D printing for some of our components on the ground. Um, so um, for our uh, engine bells and some of the um, uh, what we call our reaction control system, the thrusters that we have, uh, they're looking at using actually pretty high-tech alloys 
and those alloys are very expensive and hard to cast and hard to uh, manufacture in the traditional method. So they're looking at 3D methods to do near net, you know, manufacturing of those. So. One more uh. question. Sure. Um, this beer is delicious. Is that the answer? <laughs> Um, so the, right. Um, so I'm not sure I picked up the first part of your question, but the the gist was. Oh, how many launches of? Uh, so, um, I haven't been on what you would say console for. This is my first mission for that. So, um, uh, I did when I was up at the University of uh, Colorado. We did some experiments. And we sent a number of them up on the shuttle, up to Mir, up to a number of places. Um, so um, I got to experience flying space hardware, but um, never in this capacity. So this is a kind of a new thing for me. Uh, and then the other question was, how did I feel kind of as a, as a human being or a guy? As Yeah, um, it was kind of surreal, actually, because... Um, you know, we go through a number of launch simulations um, and, you know, looking at data on our screens and going through everything that we, you know, are supposed to do on the day of flight and they're throwing, you know, this broke and this broke and this broke. How do you fix it? What are you going to do? Um, and from that perspective, we were bored to tears because the vehicle, both launch days getting up to launch, we worked zero issues. The launch, the, the spacecraft itself was behaving very well. Um, and then on orbit, everything seemed to, seemed to go. But when it lifted off, that was a pretty surreal, uh, that kind of hit home, like, this is real. This is go time, and um, uh, it's got to work, you know. So, um, you know, there are... Um, long periods of boredom with very short periods of terror. Um, you know, we know all of the different critical, you know, if, if we don't get these signals from the launch vehicle that tell us we need to separate, we're not going to separate and we're going to come burning in with the launch vehicle, you know, and so you're watching your data, you're hoping that that's, you know, and when you see the data come in, you're like, okay, we're good. <laughs> and then you can relax for another 20 minutes and then you're waiting for the next period of sheer terror. Um, but that's, that's pretty much, you know, what it's like. Um, there were a lot of times where you're looking at the data, falling back into the, you know, thinking back that, oh, this is just a simulation. I'm just looking at data. And then you kind of look up and see the screen where the video is showing the, the view from Apogee. And you're like, oh, no, we're operating a real vehicle today. <laughs> this isn't a simulation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was, that was an interesting part of it. Um, you know, emotions runs high. Um, uh, you know, to see it all work was, was pretty overwhelming at some points. Um, and especially when it landed, it was pretty cool. So, thanks, everybody.
a gentleman who walked across the nation. What's his name? Jonathan Stahl, and he started this whole connect through walking uh, way of talking about community. So he's pretty compelling. I'm not making it sound as compelling as he is. Please come in January. <laughs>